Hello. Hello. How's it going, brother? I'm good. How are you? Good. Doing well, man. People said they enjoyed the last episode, but they said they could hear me well, but not hear you as well. That was one of the, the pieces of feedback. So um, you want to get the microphone check one, two, one, two, right? Uh, Before yeah, we get yeah. it get it popping, maybe like you need a, uh, a headset or something. Yeah, um, I'm trying to get one just because I move around a lot. Mm. Because, you know, I have, I have ADHD, so it's hard for me to stay in one place. <laughs> right. I get like that, too. When I'm excited in conversation, I'm usually walking. Like, the cell phone was created especially for me. I can't, like, sit still and have a cell phone conversation. Yeah, I understand that. But I'm sitting down for you, sir. So I'm trying to contain all of this energy. You know how I get. I get hot and sweaty and foaming at the mouth when I'm, <laughs> yeah, when I'm, pa- when I'm Sometimes. passionate. Sometimes. This is, yeah, I, you know, I'm kidding, but not kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome to part two with the amazing set. Um, part one broke like record v- listens. There you go. Yeah. We're making progress. That's it. Moving on up. Yeah. If this one breaks it, I'll have a D1 athlete on, or former D1 athlete. It's, come on now. Let's see if we can get you there today, man. What are we going to chop it up today about? Um, obviously, the NBA bubble, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was some trouble in the bubble last week, but uh, I don't know if that trouble is still troubling the bubble because the games are happening and they don't look too bad out there, man. I took a peek at the uh, Rockets and Bucks game a couple of nights ago. I didn't, I didn't watch the whole thing. It was getting kind of late, but I did take a peek at it. And it was cool. I liked the court, the Black Lives Matter. You couldn't totally tell there was no fans in there. What is that, Gall? Is there like, do they have screens up there to kind of like project people? Because I thought I saw movement, but I was like, nah, it looks like cutouts. Well, there there are some people there, like the NBA players okay. who are there. Okay. They can watch the game. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. So it wasn't just me. Like, there was actual movement in the stands. Yeah, because, you know, 90-year-old Greg Popovich is probably taking notes. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So you're a Rockets fan. I am. Or do you I, like Harden and Westbrook? I do. I like that combination again. I've been a. I was so originally I was a Thunder fan, and the Thunder still is cool. They're looking good, um, but you know I, I just was so committed to that duo of Westbrook and Durant when that first started. Um, I just thought it was like, you know, it was like watching two players who had so much potential to like power up and explode but both also had, like, the character flaws that complemented each other, right? Because, like, Westbrook was really, like, the point guard who was playing like he was a two, right? And yeah. if only he could rein it in, you know, and know when to pass and kind of learn his role a little bit more, perfect, right? And Kevin Durant, yeah. when they first started, was the dude that was like, man, this guy is amazing and is probably going to end up being one of the best players in the league this generation but if only he could know that about himself and gain that confidence to take charge when he needs to you know what i'm saying so it was like yeah, their character flaws perfectly complemented story each other i just really liked that story you know yeah yeah so I, at one point they no go ahead at one point 
at one point they had James Harden on that team too. And that's one that's and that was perfect too. Like it was like, okay, here's another guy who compliments them well, incredibly explosive, but has this character flaw where it's kind of similar to Russell, where it's like, okay, if he can rein it in, learn really his position is to 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 pass the ball, take shots when he needs to. He's become a far more perfect. We, I mean, I think when he was playing for OKC, he was an amazing shooter, an amazing six man. You know, you weren't gonna play him ahead of Russ, but he was amazing. I, I feel like Scotty Brooks should have played with that combination a little bit more, with having all three of them on the floor at once. I felt like we never got to see the full maturation of that before they split up. But yeah. he was not nearly like this just dagger shooter that he is now. You know, when he was with OKC, like I had no idea that he was going to evolve into this guy who just on a bad night is hitting 40 points a game, you know? Yeah. And one thing that kind of hurt that team is when they got rid of Harden, the league was still kind of, you know, you need a real big man. Yeah. And Serge Ibaka was, that's why they paid him all that money, because at the time, that's, that's who you were supposed to pay. And Serge Ibaka was a nice combo on that team, too. I think he served well, but he just was never going to bring the offensive firepower that a James Harden did, or even I think the overall basketball IQ and savvy that James Harden has and has developed. Yeah. To be honest, I, I felt like we should have got rid of Nick Collison a lot earlier and should have picked up Steven Adams, you know, cause it's less like, man, had KD been there, had Harden been there with Russ and Steven, a man, it'd been over. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, and Nick Collison is a lot like how Zach Randolph was for the, the Grizzlies. <laughs> yeah. You know, he just does a lot of stuff for the community. Right, right. And I feel like that's why Thunder fans loved him so much. Exactly, exactly. He was, I mean, so, you know, he, he was supposed to be good in Kansas. I never did watch his college career, but that's why they picked him up. I mean, he was supposed to have done his thing back then, so. Oh, no, I didn't watch any of his Kansas highlights. Me either, me either, me either. <laughs> the, the only – uh. The only two white dudes I watched uh, play college basketball were Jimmer Fredette and uh, Psycho T. Psycho T. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. But, so, in your opinion, so who's going to win the West and who's going to win the East for you? I mean, I guess things in, could in still be sh shaken up a little bit. And even though I'm a Rockets fan, I mean, I think the answer is still obvious as it was before you know, the lockdown, right? I mean, we're still looking at the possibility of a Lakers versus Bucks uh, championship, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's still the reality. I think that's the matchup, man, people really kind of wanted. Um, I'm glad that they did, that there's still kind of this opportunity for teams to battle their way through and into the playoffs. Um, that's cool. But I would have liked to see them get straight to the point with this restart, pause, and then get started with a regular season again in like February, you know? Um, yeah. So, but this is, I think this is cool. I think this is, this is nice. Um, it's not terrible. What, what's your opinion about the thing with, you know, with jerseys I and mean, inform me a little bit about that. I don't think I know enough. What's, what's up with the jersey? So the commissioner, he approved a set list of things you could wear on the back of your jersey. Mm -hmm. Um, like say their names, um, Black Lives Matter, or wait, no. So that's on the court. You can say All Lives Matter. And uh, there are a bunch of other ones. Uh, like, you, you, I think you can have somebody's name on the back of your jersey that was uh, murdered by the police. Okay. But Jimmy Butler, 
he wanted to wear a blank jersey because he he didn't like the uh, ones he didn't like the list of options. Right. But he also didn't want to wear his last name on there. Mm-hmm. But the NBA won't let him do that. So and that I find disappointing. I was a little disappointed in Adam Silver in that because he's proven to be a great commissioner, a great follow up commissioner to David Stern. Um, you know, but I, I just kind of felt like, man, you know, let him let him wear no name on the back of his jersey. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just yeah. felt like in this instance, even that speaks probably more volumes than any of those little taglines that they were having, because it's like this represents the names of people who have gone unspoken, who have been murdered by police. And even Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, you know, and Ahmaud Arbery, like, they're not nameless, their names are known, but they're also no longer present, you know? Yeah. And so in that way, not wearing a name on the back of your jersey, I think, still speaks volumes. And it also speaks about the brokenness and the disconnection that I think African-Americans feel uh, from what the American dream is. Like there's that blank space in between. And even, of course, our connection with our ancestral homeland of Africa. Again, it's not the same as the X, as if the nation, you know, as what the nation of Islam has done, but it still represents like there's something disconnected, there's something missing. Um, so I, I think not wearing a number, I mean, wearing a name on the back of your jersey is totally fine. If it was college ball, you can't put your name on the jersey. And it's not like we can't, yeah. it's not like we can't point Jimmy Butler all, out, you know, on of all the people on the court. We know exactly who Jimmy Butler looks, you know, is, and we know his number. So, yeah, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't understand that move at all. Yeah. And so one thing I want to talk to you about NBA basketball. So it, you think the Lakers are going to beat the Clippers and make it to the finals? Whoa, right? whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you, just put, you just put all of that in my mouth, and I didn't say any of that. I said that I think it is going to end up being the Lakers versus the Bucks. But, yes, I do think that. <laughs> yes, I do actually think that. Though. I do think that the Lakers have proven, uh, and I'm surprised. I thought it was going to take them a little bit of time to kind of figure it out some more. You know, usually with LeBron – he engages in these experiments that take time or kind of don't work out the way he thought. Like even with Miami took a couple of years for them to start getting the championships. And then on top of that, you know, originally not one, not two, not, no, you just get two, buddy, you know? And uh, yeah. And so even then going back to Cleveland, like that experiment didn't quite work the way he thought it was. I think he thought for sure he would sweep up another two or three there, and that didn't happen, right? Um, so, yeah. We'll, we'll see. I, I thought they should have kept, uh, I thought they should have kept Wiggins, because, I mean, as as good as Kevin Love was in Minnesota, mm-hmm. he couldn't provide the essential thing that, in my opinion, that the Cavs needed. Like, Kevin Love in the playoffs would score 10 points. Right. Right. Like, that, that's not helping LeBron. Not at all. Not at all. It's not helping Kyrie either. And it's not doing the things that, you know, you were expected to do. And it's certainly not even doing the things that you were doing in Minnesota when it was you and Rubio, you know, like, so he just didn't come as advertised. He didn't even look like a homeboy in the Pepsi commercial. What was his alter ego in the Pepsi commercial? Oh, the the love dog? (laughs) Yeah, something like this. Um, But yeah, I mean, he just... 
I don't know. The Kevin Love thing just didn't didn't quite work out. And no, that's no disrespect to Kevin Love. I still think he's a great player and played hard. He also got I think he like got into injury troubles as well. He got injured. So Yeah, he did. Yeah, there was there was a few things. See, okay, now here's my thing on the Lakers, okay? Mm-hmm. You, no, I'm, LeBron is, in my opinion, you can put him, at, I think him and Michael Jordan are 1A, 1B, and you can flip-flop him however you want to. Ooh, you're talking greasy right now. I got something to say about that, but keep going. Well, okay. <laughs> so, LeBron, when he's won championships, he's always had a big three. Right. Of somewhat. Mm-hmm. Or hyped-up big three. Mm-hmm. So, with this team that he's playing with now, um, LeBron is he, – he has a killer instinct, but he doesn't show it all the time, in my opinion. Because, mm-hmm. like, we see him hit game-winning shots. Oh, he knows how but, to turn it on and off. When he wants to, he shows up, and when he feels like, okay, it's not as needed, he doesn't. It's just as yeah. simple as that. So, if, like, let's say game two is on the line. Mm-hmm. I don't think LeBron's taking a game-winning shot in game two. No. So my thing is, who who's going to be the clutch player on the team? Because as much as I love Anthony Davis as a basketball player, right? Anthony Davis hasn't won a playoff series, and nobody. On the, I don't think J.R. Smith or the legend of Kobe Wade, Dion Waiters, is hitting a game-winning shot when you need it. Well, Anthony Davis has never had a LeBron either. So, you know, yeah, that's let's keep that in mind. Fair point. Right. Fair point. Um, so, but the question is, who is winning, hitting the game winning shot? Like, who is that other person? You know, you talk about the big three that they really can trust. J.R. Smith has already proven that, you know, he can't necessarily always be trusted. He's not a bad player, but he isn't necessarily the player you trust. Dwight Howard, yeah. I think, has shown some improvement. Um, because I think a lot of people have written Dwight Howard off. I'm from Atlanta. He's from Atlanta. You know, I think sometimes Dwight Howard just, you know, ego and all those other jokes and everything else can kind of get in the way with him. But I've seen him actually get a little bit better as I've watched him play this year. Caruso ain't bad either. Um, but I, again, oh, don't tell me you're on the Caruso train with everybody. I, it's not a train per se. I just don't think he, I mean, he's not, he's not trash. I think we're going to see a, a well, of course he's not yeah, we're going to see a player who will develop and possibly get better. But again, as it stands right now, he's not a person that you, that you trust. Rondo. Yeah. Cool. Avery Bradley will probably be the next person down the line. But Avery Bradley's not playing. So then there you have it. Which is which is why they signed the the guy who ate too many edibles on an airplane, Dion. <laughs> Can you blame the man for that? He didn't know his dose. That was you know it's it's a common problem. I, I hear, I hear. <laughs> yeah, oh. common problem. Uh-huh. But so I, I want to say something. So why I think LeBron and Michael are reversible at one A one B. Okay. So I don't. The ring argument, uh, whatever, you can make that if you want to, MJ fans. But the killer instinct thing, where they're like, LeBron's not taking the game-winning shot when it matters. Because, you know, some people do say that about LeBron. Right. But I think we'll see that change, though. I mean, I think it just depends what what game it is, you know, and where they're playing and how he feels that pressure, you know, and the narrative that the media is spinning. All of those things, I think play into a factor. I think he has that killer instinct and, again, knows when to turn it on. I don't yeah. think 
his killer instinct. And this is where I said you're kind of talking greasy because when you say LeBron and Jordan is 1A, 1B, what happened to Kobe, bro? Like, <laughs> did, you not, okay. did you not remember Kobe, Brian? That killer instinct yes, yes, that yes, you're yes. talking I about that you see Kobe. that you see in Michael Jordan, man, that is directly linked to Kobe Bryant. He was never called the Mamba for nothing. That man had killer instinct, and there was no question on his Lakers squad who was taking game-winning shot. Who do you trust? It's Bean, clearly. Except that one time Derek Fisher took the game-winning shot. <laughs> yes, yes. But that aside... That aside, we know, yeah. you know who's who's gonna take it, who's gonna demand to take it, and who can be most trusted to take it. Yeah, because I talked about that in uh, one of my earlier podcast episodes. I said I, the the superstar or the best player on the team doesn't always take the game winning shot, unless you're Kobe, because Kobe's taking the last shot. Right. I like even like with Michael, John Paxson or Steve Kerr was taking sure, the game shot. Sure, sure, and we're doing really, really well, but. Michael Jordan really had to grow into trusting them, you know, and, and that was also a lot, especially with the Kerr situation that also, I don't think at that time, Scotty Pippen, I don't know if Scotty was playing at that time, right? I think he might've been sitting out doing his yeah. thing. And then also that was a lot of the development of their new offensive strategy that Phil was incorporating, you know, Jordan was, yes. he was learning, you know, is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I see that level of, I think LeBron James has learned that sort of lesson from Jordan. And I think he learned it early and quicker, you know, and Kobe yeah. did too. Like, Hey, even though Kobe was more like Jordan in a sense, like I'm going to antagonize and some sometimes just be a straight butthole to my, you know, to my colleagues in order to try to yeah. push them to greatness that he did take from Jordan. He also developed and learned like, okay, if I trust these guys after I've pushed them to greatness, then they have an opportunity to actually be great. And that's something that I think LeBron learned, you know, in Miami because he had other great players. I wouldn't say he necessarily learned that in Cleveland because I think at that time he, he had the whole team on his back. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like he, he had Delonte West. Yeah, on that. Exactly. He had to. He was the only person there to take the shot, any shot, really. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. But that's something that that Jordan learned. And I think that's something that has advanced a player like LeBron James is being able to learn from Kobe and Jordan and developed, developed sharing the ball more. I don't have to be that guy. You know, this is a team sports. What makes basketball so amazing? Yeah, definitely. And so this is the last thing I'm going to say about the bubble, the trouble in the bubble, whatever you want to call it. Uh -huh. um, and then we'll get to some real issues in America and not talk about sports the whole time. Sure. Okay, so, so this is going to be a, a, a freezing cold take to almost everybody. Mm -hmm. So my favorite team in the Eastern Conference is the Pacers. And I think the Pacers are going to make it to the Eastern Conference Finals and have a chance to make it to the NBA Finals. Now, let me tell you why. Okay. Before. Okay. Um, I think Nate McMillan is one of the most underrated coaches mm -hmm. in the NBA. Okay. Because... He takes that mediocre team every year to the five seed. And they should have won against the Celtics last year, but their lack of IQ and players kind of messed that up. Right. And I think TJ Warren could be a legit NBA All-Star next year. So they're finding a way to win basketball games mm -hmm. with an average team. I, I'm not mad at that. I think we'll see some new blood and some new teams begin to arise, 
you know, in the NBA right now. I mean, I think that that's, that's quite possible. I just don't know if they have what it takes. And I also think, like, not that I think that the NBA is rigged, but I think that there is kind of this narrative and this push, both within the, the league and the knowledge that players have that this is supposed to be the time in which we see Giannis versus LeBron, you know? Yeah. Um, so is it possible for the Pacers to make it there? Are they one of the hardest working teams in the East or just in the NBA? Yes. Are they deserving of it? Quite possibly. Is that the finals we want to see? No. <laughs> I don't think anybody no. wants to see that, you know, especially after the year we had. We want to see what we always planned, We, you know, to see earlier this year was Lakers versus Bucks. Yeah, if the Pacers made the finals, that'd be like the um, – the Lakers net series that one year. <laughs> right, right. And again, same thing. Nobody wanted to see that either. But it ended up being not a bad game, not a bad series. So, Well, well we almost got worse because the Kings should have won that series, but the NBA kind of helped the Lakers a little bit. We were, we were about to see the Kings and the Nets in the finals. And that was the day before hell froze over. <laughs> exactly. Okay, we're going to get to some real issues. Let's do it. Um. One of the homies of the podcast, Nick Cannon, <laughs> um, he had on his podcast called Cannon's Class. It's now taken down, so you can't watch the podcast. I think it's on YouTube somewhere, though, to be honest. Um, he had Professor Griff on, and Professor Griff has been labeled as anti-Semitic multiple times right? because of his beliefs. And so Nick had him on his podcast, which was a dumb idea to begin with, because you know you're going to get the same treatment. Right. And he agreed with a couple things he said, just saying like, yeah, 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 stuff like that. And so Nick is now labeled as, got labeled as anti-Semitic and lost his job a while and out. Um, what are your views on Nick Cannon? Well, I'll stick specifically to my views on this situation with Nick Cannon. Um, okay. well, you said it. You said it best. I mean, progress, pro Professor Griff and Public Enemy, um, you know, are two things that you know were controversial and remain controversial. But this is how controversial progress Professor Griff is. Public Enemy had to cut him loose because of the comments he made. Yeah. So, and this is a band that's always been controversial, always been in America's face and kind of threatening to white America, um, been pro-black righteousness and the movement, militant, and yet Professor Griff is too radical for them or says things that are, you know, just too big gaffes um, for them to keep them. So then Nick Cannon should have known, okay, I'm really, really taking a risk here because yeah. One, I want to engage him in a conversation that opens up dialogue for anti-Semitic remarks. And I know that he has made anti-Semitic remarks before. So I think Nick Cannon had to have known what this conversation was going to conjure up, which places him in a position of, of fault. Um, because I think it is insensitive, even when those statements are a part of you know, a part of the theology of someone's religious beliefs. And I do think that, hey, religious beliefs are controversial. Like that's just, yeah, you know, definitely. that's just, we can take any major religion or even any of those smaller religions and any creed or statement could be considered controversial, especially in this PC, don't say anything or we cancel you culture that we live in. Um, yeah. 
But with that being said, just because it's a part of someone's religion doesn't mean you still can't make ignorant, bonehead, and just straight up racist remarks. Your religion could promote racism, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that that's a major part of, um, you know, certain certain religions and theologies that place, you know, the black man or Africans or whatever as kind of the center of the earth and the center of the universes and sees other races, whether they be Jews or just Caucasians in general, as not only inferior, but kind of generalize and stereotype them as evil and sinister and having planned, right, to ruin the black man's destiny. And I just think that the sad part about that is that African-Americans and Jewish people have so much in common, both in terms of biblical, you know, perspectives and attachments to the idea of being four centuries in slavery, having come out of that. There are connections biblically and even historically between the ancient Hebrews and Africa. You see that in both in the Bible. You see that verified by archaeology. Um, even this, uh, we're the only two groups of people, right, that actually the word diaspora, the Greek word for scattering or spreading, really truly applies to, right? Yeah. Jews have been scattered from their homeland of Israel, right? Africans have been scattered from our homeland um, of Africa, right, into worlds that are very much both Egypt in the sense that America is a place of bondage for the black man, and it is Babylon, biblically speaking, in that it is a place of exile where we are away from our homeland. And for Jews, they have experienced both of those events as well, both in their scattering um, throughout uh, Europe as well as in Russia. And they would may even say they feel like that in, in parts of America as well, as they've had to deal with a lot of the discriminations um, that we have. So it's unfortunate that, you know, we we try often to cover up some of our or we cover up our racist views behind religion but i think it's also unfortunate that we allow these these silly petty and anti-historical arguments to become so convoluted that they hinder us from being able to connect with allies and the black justice movement right now and has always is in need of allies and i think we yeah. could incorporate you know, Jewish people as allies. They were allies in the 60s, you know, um, and I think that they, you know, many Jewish lawyers and civil rights attorneys have been prominent members of the ACLU and have fought for civil liberties in this country and other organizations. I think we would be surprised the amount of help that we would have with them if we could flush out these conversations. Now, what Nick Cannon probably should have did was actually, if he was going to stand on those beliefs of kind of Hebrew Israel, or, you know, we see some of this anti-Semitic rhetoric also in Rastafarianism, of course, in the nation of Islam as well. If he was going to espouse those views because he's beginning to kind of gravitate towards that theology, it would have been smarter to actually have a Jewish rabbi on his show. Yeah. Or yeah. why not have Howard Stern, since you know him from working with America's Got Talent, or Howie Mandel, you know two Jewish white guys. Like, yeah. why not have a conversation with them? That would have been far more constructive and a heck of a lot safer. Yeah, and I was about to get to that after you finished talking. Um, after his anti-Semitic comments that the media labeled, and after he got fired, he, um, he apologized, and then he had 
uh, rabbi on his next episode of the podcast. And now, a lot, there was mixed feelings in the African-American community and just other communities in general besides African-Americans. Some of them were calling him a sellout because he apologized. And then others, like me, you know, big Nick Cannon fans, were like, oh, it's okay, buddy. So, what would you think? if Would you call him a sellout or being apologetic? Well, it's never selling out when a person, especially man, a man, humbles himself, admits when he's wrong, when he really actually is wrong. I mean, Nick Cannon was wrong. Um, yeah. And the things that he consented to, and even having Pro- Professor Griff on his show was insensitive to to members of his audience, which I'm sure there are probably some Jewish kids or young hip hop fans who listen to him or like, or even his homies, Howard Stern and Howie Mandel, his coworkers that you offended and you didn't even think about them. Um, so yeah. you were wrong. So I don't think that makes him a sellout. It'd be different if he was apologizing for telling the truth, but that wasn't the case. Um, and you know, some of your listeners may have some different views or many African-Americans out there may have different views about how they feel about Jewish people. But I think whenever we stereotype and generalize and uh, malign an entire group of people based on assumptions that can't even necessarily be verified by history, I think, you know, that's racist. And I think we black people aren't always capable of racism because I think racism requires power. But I think when we spout that sort of nonsense, we see ourselves perpetrating the same hate that has been perpetrated against us. So I don't think that it was selling out for him to do that. Um, And I didn't listen to his conversation with the rabbi, so I don't know how constructive the conversation was. But it would have been, I think, a better conversation overall, a more entertaining one. And I think people, it would have made sense and would have made a better gesture to the Jewish community, have Howard Stein on there. Here's a person yeah. who people love to hear talk anyway. He's made his entire life out of talking about controversial topics. And he himself has even had members of his crew and other people come on the show who have said bonehead racist statements. You know, yeah. and, you know, his homegirl Robin has had to step in and check them. And Howard Stern, rightfully so, has defended Robin against racist yeah. bonehead statements or sexist statements that people on his show has had. So I think having that conversation with Howard Stern would have been brilliant. Plus it would have upped his, you know, his streams or his listens by hundreds of thousands, you know? So to me, it's, it's kind of like, you know, there would have been a better way to do it. I, I don't think Nick Cannon is a bad guy. I really don't. Yeah. I don't think that he's a person that, uh, really adheres to or espouses anti-Semitic rhetoric or beliefs. I think what you have is a young black man who is looking for inspiration that empowers him as a black man. He feels as though, you know, some of the traditional religions of African-Americans, such as Christianity or Islam, hasn't quite satisfied him. He, like many other young black men, look to either the Nation of Islam or Hebrew Israel to scratch that itch, that theological curiosity. And as he's exploring this knowledge, which has been presented to him as factual based knowledge, he's encountering anti-racist sentiments and comments, and he's trying to have conversation about them. And so that lands him in deep water, but he is a man that's on a journey of exploring. I don't think we can look at him and say that Nick Cannon is this person who says, doggone it, this is what I believe, and this is how I feel about these people, and I'm going to be the champion and trailblazer of this of this belief system. 
Now, if he doubles down, <laughs> you know, and two months later we see he, you know, he's up at it again, saying all sorts of horrible things against groups of people. Well, then, if the shoe fits, yeah, yeah. So and and then so on his podcast with the rabbi, the. I'm just gonna be honest. The rabbi didn't look happy to be. He was not very energetic. He's just like, eh, whatever. It yeah, seems yeah, like yeah. the typical yeah, apology tour. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Jews have gone through the same stuff we've gone through. You know, imagine if you're you're the black guy that a white racist person has said something ridiculous about, and you got to sit down with this white racist, you know, and hear his little, you know convoluted apology that you're not even sure if it's sincere or if he's just apologizing because he got caught sort of thing. You know, like how many times has, has this rabbi probably had to hear this? Not from necessarily from black people, from white folks, from, from whoever, from Germans, from Russians, from people who may have historically and systematically, you know, been an oppressor to him or his people. How many times has this man had to sit down and hear these same cockamamie apologies. I mean, it was just earlier, was it earlier this year or towards the end of last year, the Tree of Life Synagogue? You know, unfortunately, they had shot that thing up. Um, that was up in Pennsylvania. I mean, Jews, have, there's been an increase of anti-Semitism, both in, you know, in words and on the Internet, as well as just outbursts of violence against them. I'm sure that man is exhausted with having yeah. to fight that fight. Yeah, and it didn't help that he was in his like sixties, so he's probably heard this heard it all thousands of times. Exactly. You talking to a and that's the reality. You talking to a man who has a mother, if he's sixty, then he has a mother who remembers the Holocaust or family yeah. members. Or he himself may very well be the result of a family that escaped the Holocaust. You think he's sitting there trying to listen to somebody make excuses or apologize? for why they've said something which to him should be obviously clear is wrong to say and do. Yeah, I, I don't think he was too pleased to listen to that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, about like Kanye at his presidential rallies. So. Oh, gosh. So uh, I'm beyond words when it comes to Kanye. Like, I'm just like, I'm so tired of talking to him. He's on that list of people like, Orange 45, who I don't speak, really like to speak their names because I feel like people who are those sort of megalomaniacal, you know, egomaniac sort of people, I really believe words transmit energy. And those sort of people love to suck up all the energy they can. They can feel it. They're like energy vampires. And so when you speak their name, whether it's good or bad, I just feel like it just makes them bigger and bigger, you know? Um, okay, I got you. We, we won't talk about Kanye, then we'll move on to the Kardashians. <laughs> it's the same conversation. <laughs> we can talk about him. I know that there's, you know, I know people are, are interested to hear our take on him. We can, I just want to put that out there, that I just feel like if it's one thing, it's another with this guy, you know, and it's so yeah, similar exactly. to his friend that it's just like, man, can y'all just go somewhere and be quiet? Can y'all put your phones away and just I don't understand why y'all can't spend more than 24 hours in a room by yourself without talking. Yeah, but the see, as us on this podcast, we support Kanye as a joke. <laughs> and because in reality, we just want to see uh, keeping up with the Keeping up with the Kardashians in the White oh House. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! White House edition. Oh my goodness! Amazing for four years. What do you think? Just imagine. I need someone who's really good at drawing. So an amazing visual artist out there. 
to draw what the White House looks like when Kanye and Kim have decorated it. What is that? What does that even look like? Like, there's a part of it that's going to be really fly, right? And there's a part of yeah. it that's going to be so over the top and gaudy that world history will never forget it, right? Like, because you know he's going to want to turn the White House into like Versailles, right? Like Louis the Fourteenth France Palace sort of thing, you know? Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> Yeah, we might have one half of it painted per camera. <laughs> exactly. It might just end up like putting like boost soles underneath the entire building. So it's just kind of like a bouncy house or something. Yeah, maybe. Um, but So Kanye is not really on the topic of discussion today. <laughs> but I, I always like to throw in Kanye because it's fun. Well, you know, recently he just uh, he just rescinded his petition and um, oh goodness, I'm gonna forget what state it was. Was it Ohio or New Jersey? One of them, and that was just like earlier today or yesterday. He just like you know it was the same thing. He said he he said okay, I want to be president, and he said he wasn't. And then all of a sudden he did the rally in South Carolina where he made the dumb remarks, and then he and then he didn't get enough votes there, and then he popped up in another state, and it didn't quite work for him. And now he's rescinding his thing. It's like. That's the thing with Kanye, like, we know there's mental illness there, and it makes us sad. Those of us who still yeah. even care at all about Kanye West, which I am one of those people, and I do think that he's a creative genius. I really do think he's one of the most imaginative and forward minds of the 21st century. Yeah. And the problem is I mean, he knows it, and he knows it a bit too well. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of Kanye and doing his rescinding, coming back, whatever he's doing, um, where I live at the moment, Oklahoma, he's actually on the ballot. Wow. Wow. So you can actually vote for Kanye on the ballot here in Oklahoma. I was I was just in Oklahoma this summer, and it was a really eye-opening and fun time. I enjoyed my time in Tulsa, and going there to Greenwood, Archer, and Pine was just an amazing, amazing experience. One of the coolest kind of history adventures I've ever done. Um, but Oklahoma is an interesting state. The dynamics of, of people there and what, what's going on with culture is is really, really unique. I didn't know y'all had all that yeah. going on over there. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't surprise me that he's on the ballot there. That is, that is not a surprise. Um, one of the things I did want to talk about because it just came out the other day mm -hmm. and I know you don't know much about this man, but here on the podcast, uh, he, he's on the list of people that you shouldn't make fun of on the podcast. Okay. Or, or else we, we, we might have a fight. Oh, Lord. Um, Antonio Brown is going to be back. Oh, my gosh. I knew his name was going to be This is booming. And what is he back to doing? I don't know a whole lot about this man. Tell me, tell me the antics. I'll let you take it away, this, this segment. I'm just listening. Okay, so Antonio Brown for the last year has been doing what the NFL has told him to do. Like, you need to see this therapist. Uh, you need to take this anger management course. You need to do all this random stuff. And Antonio has been doing it for the last year. And finally, he came out with a uh, Twitter or Instagram post mm -hmm. saying, listen, I've been doing your stuff for a year. I think it's stupid, but I've been doing it because you've been telling me to, mm -hmm. and it's the only way I can get back in the NFL. Right. Now, if you don't let me know, like, you give me a suspension, and if something else comes up after all this civil case, all these civil cases are done, 
then you can add into the suspension. But just give me a suspension now, and if you don't, I'm going to retire. What? And I, the NFL, that sounds right. That sounds suitable for him to want an answer, right? Yes. Right. So the NFL finally came out and said, you're getting an eight-game suspension, which is the same as a lot of NFL suspensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cream Hunt kicked a girl in the face, eight-game suspension. Um, drugs, eight-game suspension. Eight games is like the normal. Uh, so he suspended eight games. So a team is finally allowed to sign him now where he won't be on the commissioner's list where he just doesn't do anything. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So it, it's good for him. But I have a lot of problems with the NFL because one of the people that I like, Josh Gordon, you we can talk about this because I think it's civilly unwrong, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So marijuana. Marijuana is cool in like every other sport except football, or it was at least last year. Right. And Josh Gordon is on like the commissioner's drug list where he gets he can get a drug test anytime. Wow. And because of things he's done in the past. Mm-hmm. And not not necessarily bad. He smokes marijuana because he gets hit a lot. He's a wideout. He gets hit a lot. And so he's he found like it, it takes his, takes away anxiety and pain and all of that. Yes. Got it. So, and mostly all my Caucasian friends want to say, oh, Josh Gordon's stupid because in the NFL, they tell you, they tell you the two times when you can get drug tested. Either right after the season, before summer starts, or you will get tested right when training workouts start. Uh-huh. But if you don't get tested at the end of summer, or when summer starts, then you can't drink or smoke anything until you get tested. Got it. And to get on this list, all you need is one offense. So it doesn't even have to be smoking marijuana. Josh Gordon, what got him on the list was a DUI. Mm not even smoking marijuana or whatever you do. Right. <laughs> and so, and now he gets drug tested all the time and his NFL career is basically over now because of how many times he's got suspended from, for this. And now right after he's gone, the NFL is like, Oh, marijuana is cool now. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a double standard too. And that's, I think what you're expressing is that, so we had, um, uh, Rice, right? I forget his first name. Was it Ray Rice, right? We all saw the elevator incident. And yet there wasn't the immediate reaction, right? It wasn't until yeah. the media gave the reaction that the NFL kind of gave their counter reaction. But we know that there, have other, there are other players who've had all sorts of bad behavior. Uh, we can even think about Hernandez, right? And all of that horrible behavior that the NFL knew and covered up. Right. Or let slide because yeah, could, for, a while. for a long time, you know, because he was on he had the right jersey on. I mean, let's just call it what it was, you know. Yeah. Um, and so and it seems as though there's that double standard of who it is. And it seems there's that double standard of what it is. Uh, I think D, a DUI is a, is a serious offense. Right. I mean, because okay. yeah. you're talking about now you're endangering your life, but also the lives of other people, people who are innocent that have to drive along the street with your dumb behind because you wanted to drink too much and get behind the wheel. Obviously, you yes. drank too much because you got pulled over. They did a breathalyzer and you were over the limit. So there's, it's inexcusable. Um, and that is a far more serious offense than a person who's smoking 
you know, marijuana, whether it be CBD or THC, because they're trying to alleviate head trauma, anxiety, stress, PTSD, even really, if you think about for some football players, if you're on linemen, like, you I mean, you got, you got to constantly have 300 and something pounds coming at you on a regular basis. Um, I think that that would, that, that might merit some anxiety that would require something, something medical to assist with that. And if you ain't trying to take opiates, right. Or have a whole bunch of, um, synthetic chemicals that could mess your liver and kidney up, then you probably are going to smoke marijuana. Right. I think those are two very, very different offenses. Um, the drug testing part of it, I think should be geared more than anything to look at is a person doping with performance enhancing drugs, but the NFL, I think this just speaks to this very, I don't know, bizarro concept that the NFL has that somehow because it's America's sport, it's supposed to be this kind of super patriotic, middle America, white bread, you know, all these guys are supposed to be perfect up model patriot American heroes. Like they're all Captain Americas or Superman from Kansas yeah. or something. Clark Kent's out there, right? Um, because this is the image that the NFL wants to portray, which is ironic considering that the most beer and alcohol that is consumed throughout the week is on Sundays when people are watching the game or during the Super Bowl, right? Not to mention that this entire league is funded and makes and is sponsored by alcohol. You, whether it's what's on the jumbotron, the commercials that are constantly shown, every neon sign that's all across every stadium across America, we have socially sanctioned the idea that you can get stupid drunk as long as you're watching football. Yeah. Um, so it seems hypocritical for them to want to, you know, punish people or punish their players when they are saying, hey, I'm just as rowdy as the average American out here that you're marketing this gladiator sport and event to, this blood sport to. Um, And it's also hypocritical for them to then punish people who are smoking marijuana, right, when you've got people who are also doing DUIs or this entire industry itself is funded by by alcohol. Like, yeah, but, but that also just speaks to American culture in and of itself in terms of how we view and deal with drugs, right? And that's yeah. that's a whole nother topic in and of itself. But I think a lot of people would marvel if they really did the history of drugs and drug culture in this country. And again, I'm not saying that I'm pro-drugs, but I'm also saying that it isn't as black and white as a moral issue, um, you know, or something being physically bad for you, as it is a whole lot of issues that have to deal with politics, race, and economics. Yeah, definitely. And one other thing I want to add to the NFL and the drug test, there have been multiple players who have come out and said, like uh, Chris Long, he said, yeah, I smoked weed all the time. Mm -hmm. And Percy Harvin said he was high for every game. (laughs) And there are like all these NFL players, and Chris Long won the NFL Man of the Year Award not too long ago. Wow. And he, all these NFL players are coming out and saying, hey, I got away with what Josh Gordon is doing. And there was no punishment for us because we weren't on the commissioner's list to get drug tested mm-hmm. whenever he mm-hmm. wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that sends a bad representation of, hey, uh, sorry, Josh, 
bad timing. Yeah, I mean, there's just got to be consistency. There's got to be consistency and transparency there. Um, and the intentionality has to be right. I just think the NFL is so behind the times, just like Major League Baseball, so behind the times of how America is changing, how their sports have changed, and therefore the culture of those sports have changed. The only league I would say that really has it right is the NBA. Like the and that was really a lot of what David Stern brought to the table. Like he realized this is a sport dominated by African Americans, and if they're not allowed to wear their hair the way they want to, have cool sneakers, if they're not allowed, if we're not allowed to play hip hop at these games, or that be a part of the way we market and uh, to the audience that is actually not only participating but is actually watching and contributing to this, then we're a dying sport. Um, yeah. And that's why the NBA, I think, is so cool um, and has some of the coolest athletes in it worldwide. That's why the world doesn't necessarily buy the whole football gimmick, right, but appreciates basketball is because there's this freedom for basketball athletes to, yes, be disciplined and be serious about their craft and what they represent, but also be free to be human beings. Yeah. And the thing with baseball is because I used to play baseball. And I'm I keep up with a lot of baseball games. Mm-hmm. The only the thing that hurts baseball a lot is most most of their players now are not from America, and baseball is supposed to be America's pastime. Right, they're not from America, which gives us better players. But like my dad, he doesn't watch baseball anymore because of the Astros cheating scandal, mm-hmm. and he just think he just thinks it's like not what he wants to watch anymore, which I'm I'm cool with that if he doesn't want to watch baseball anymore. Right. But small towns, like everybody in Georgia cheers for the Braves. Right. So me covering baseball, Sports Center covers like the Yankees because the Yankees are on the biggest teams. Right. You can't just cover the Braves all the time. And people in Augusta aren't gonna care what's happening with the Yankees. Right. Exactly. So I think that's the toughest part with baseball. It's it's locally. It's not really uh, because we're in Augusta and we're going to cheer for the biggest team, being the Yankees. Yeah, exactly. It's far more regionalized. I agree. Um, I, but again, the reason why I say the MLB is out of touch culturally is, like you said, is exactly the point. I mean, baseball has been for quite some time, really since the 70s and 80s, but increasingly so now, you know, has become a sport that is dominated by Hispanics. Um, And if not Caribbean, Hispanics, even Japanese players. Right. Um, And so but the MLB is not a letting go of this American apple pie mythology. Right, that it somehow has to tout this idea that we're still American pastime. It's still this kind of corn-fed, good old boy sort of culture or whatever. Um, and just accept the reality that, hey, the people who may be watching this are not necessarily the people that we're trying to market to. Because on Sunday, they're probably not watching the Braves if the seasons overlap at all. Probably trying to watch football. Um, yeah. And not only that, but like the people who really are watching the sport, embracing it, the kids who are idolizing these players and getting out there on the field to, to learn how to play this are actually the Mexicans and the Dominicans and the Cubans and the you right and and the, and the yeah. Japanese players that you're not even marketing your sport to. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you need to allow these people and these players to connect 
with the audience that's relevant for, to them and for them. And that will ultimately be good for business because it will bring you money. It will bring, it will fill out those, it'll fill those seats with fans. Yeah. And in my opinion, the most popular time for MLB baseball and when the bad teams had fans in the seats, like the Mariners, when they got Ichiro Suzuki from Japan, mm-hmm. their stadium was packed for games that shouldn't have been packed. Right. Just because there was Ichiro Suzuki. Right. Right. And it's, I just think we need bigger stars from other countries to come in and that'll help get fans in the seats again. Yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, that's one of the things about athletics, about sports, like race plays a factor in that. But that's why the world can love soccer, because it's like, of course, countries love their teams. And even within countries, you know, there's different conferences and camps or whatever of, of city leagues and stuff that's in there. But it doesn't matter when it's the Olympics or when it's the World Cup. Every country around the world is respected as, hey, you have the right to wave that flag and your team has the right to go for the gold or go for that trophy. And it doesn't matter what color you are, what country you're from. If you can play, you can play. And people around the world respect you. They'll wear your jersey. They'll root for your team. You know, despite rivalries or whatever, there's that respect that crosses borders and boundaries that normally hinder us from connecting with one another. Sports has that ability to bring people together. And if the MLB realize, hey, maybe this thing that we think is supposed to be as American as apple pie actually is this thing that's very international and diverse. Maybe we have to realize that that's who we are. That's what our sport is. And in actuality, that's actually a lot of what America is. Right. It's the best of people around the world being able to contribute to a diverse salad bowl of different flavors that work well together. They're learning to cooperate together. Hopefully the MLB, if you want to be pro-American, there's nothing more pro-American than that. Yeah. And you, you mentioned soccer. You're going to get me started on a whole soccer rant about USA soccer. Cause they, I don't like USA soccer anymore. Cause they ruined, do you know who Freddie Adu is? I do not. Okay. So, I had a president's book that my mom got me, and it's it, it, and the bottom of this, it's Freddie Adu signs the he's the youngest player to get signed in professional sports history. Okay, the the USA team pushed a fourteen year old kid into being the the star of USA soccer. That's crazy. That's crazy. And they ru- they ruined his entire career, possibly you could say life, because a lot of people don't like Freddie Adu anymore. So what are you saying? He's been playing USA soccer since he was 14, like playing professional soccer? Yeah, he's been playing professional soccer since he was 14. Oh my gosh. How old is he now? And he's, he's like 29, 30 now. Oh my gosh. And I mean, uh, that was the time the USA tried to push like, oh, we can bring up young talent. And he was an African-American. Mm-hmm. So... At that time, they were pushing, we can get athletes on the field. We, we can make soccer entertaining for African-Americans and other races. Or just for the country of the United States. Because it's certainly, you know, other than like kids playing the sport, you know, Americans don't really follow or keep up with soccer by and yeah, large. And, yeah, and America's not very good at soccer just because of the fact our best athletes play basketball, football. Right. I mean, imagine LeBron playing goalie for the USA soccer. 
I don't sure if he has that level of flexibility and dexterity, man. There's a lot of quickness that comes with playing goalie, especially. Well, okay. okay, young LeBron playing goalie. Yeah, yeah. Or or young Dwight Howard. Wow, Dwight Howard has a wingspan though. He might be actually pretty good at that. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I don't think anybody is gonna cheer for USA Soccer and like when it really matters, like. Besides the women's team, the women's team is amazing because women do play soccer here in America because there's no football for them. Right, exactly. Exactly. And I think, yeah, it, and it's a sport that has created a culture of women followers and women athletes yeah, that have yeah. come up in. But again, that's the sport being able to recognize and appreciate itself and appreciate the audience that comes with it. And that's why women's volleyball does so well. Like it's become this its own phenomenon or whatever. Not not just because I think the women have proven to be within that sport and have come up amazing, amazing athletes, but because it recognizes the culture and the audience that are a part of it and that want to watch it, that spectate it. And so it's geared itself for that, for those people, for that culture. Um, yeah. And that's why it's continuing to grow and make money. If American soccer would do the same thing and realize that, okay, this is an international sport, really. And of course, we because we're an American soccer team, we want American athletes who play really, really well. But that may also just mean that that's not how it looks starting out. It may look like America for once is going to have to recognize its place as just another country on this planet with all of the other 196 or 200 countries there are. And that this is a time where we're going to have to humble ourselves and get good at this, learn from others, um, and maybe even yeah. incorporate and include others in this sport. Yeah, and one thing that I don't think helps American soccer is the fact the teams that play in the, in the MLS, Major League Soccer, mm -hmm. we pay old Europeans who can't play soccer <laughs> to come to America to play. That's crazy. I don't think that helps very much because we're saying uh, – <laughs> Our American soccer players are, that are good are in Europe, and they're here we don't like, so we're going to hire old Europeans to play. What about all of the Latinos and Latinas that are right here in our country, right, who are citizens who are Americans, you know, yes, and have spent amazing. their entire life playing soccer and probably would love a shot to play Major League Soccer and would be really good. Yeah. Let's cultivate and spend money and invest in those communities and in those programs and in those schools and be scouting those kids, those those people, right, to represent us. But again, this is one yeah. of those things where we talked about before, not just with drug culture, but even with sports like here, race plays a role in it. Politics sort of things plays a role in it. Money, of course, plays a role in it instead of just let's do the right thing. And what's the, the kind of the obvious and best human choice? There are these other yeah. these other factors. And the guy who kind of ruined that, well, he didn't really ruin it, but he stopped. He's put a halt on it. Of we're go, we're gonna get Latin, we're gonna get Latinos born in America to play USA soccer. Right. The guy who kind of stopped that was uh, Clint Dempsey because we called him Captain America. Mm. He was the classic Caucasian white dude on the soccer team. He was the best player on Team USA for every year he played. And after that, after Clint Dempsey came along, we just got more of the stereotypical Caucasian guy to play soccer. And we kind of stopped scouting young Latinos who were born in America who were way better. Again, it's, just, it's the same problem that we've been seeing in a whole lot of a whole lot of other situations. You know, it's, yeah. it seems like in the African-American community, what we find that sports do is often exploit 
right? Take advantage. And then when that black athlete is no longer able to play, whether he's injured or, you know, contract has expired or he's fizzled out all of his money or squandered it, you know, made, made some unwise or unsavory decisions, unfavorable decisions, then you just discard this person. And unfortunately, it seems like Latinos just get altogether ignored, right? Is even having a yeah. shot or being included. Um, and that's, that's really unfortunate. That's the sad, but that's a kind of the sad reality of, of the United States. Yeah. Um, so the last thing that we had uh, planned to talk about, I think, in our phone call a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. where we planned out what we were going to talk about, um, was I, I told you that we spend tons of money on Israel. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I mean, it, it's good and bad because it has benefits. It has pros and cons just like everything. Right. Uh, pro, we get oil from is we get oil from Israel, <laughs> but we, we America's in so much debt that we, in my opinion, we should really stop paying seven trillion dollars to Israel until we get our money situated. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know the the whole history with Israel is really really complex. And again, you know, I want us to be careful because we started off this podcast you know, um, talking about anti-Semitism and how that rhetoric comes up so much in conversations. And I think it's unfortunate that anti-Semitism and talking about Israel critically have been conflated, you know, as as one as one idea. Right. Just because I feel critical about the state of Israel or the U.S. policy um, towards Israel doesn't necessarily doesn't mean that I hate Jewish people doesn't mean that I'm anti-Semitic. Now, I get that anti-Semites often conflate the two, right? They're often both hate Jews and they're against the state of Israel. Totally understand how those two things get conflated. Um, But that's not the case right here in this conversation. So I want to make that clear first off. Um, I think... Yeah, don't get me canceled. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to, you know... but, But in all honesty and sincerity, I think, you know... The United States spends so much money and has had this historical relationship with the state of Israel um, for a number of reasons. And one of them, probably the most political of them being, is maintaining, you know, a democratic and also, you know, majority white, you know, um, predominantly white and Judeo-Christian connection to a state there in the Middle East. Right. If Israel wasn't there what would be the American allies in the Middle East? I mean, yes, America has united has a relationship with Saudi Arabia that goes all the way back to the beginning, really to the first couple of decades of the, tw- of the 20th century. But again, that's an economic partnership with Saudi Arabia, largely, again, to gain advantage with oil. It isn't this yeah. kind of the strategic placing of, a, of, again, an American-like or Western-like nation right in the middle of a region where otherwise there would be no kind of Western way of thinking or mindset um, in order to kind of regulate, police, control, have a military and economic presence there. Um, and that, in, a many, in many ways, is also why Israel exists in the first place, right? That England did that same sort of thing. The United Nations did that same sort of thing with, you know, especially with England, participating in neo-imperialism in the Middle East, carving that region up, making false promises to Saudi princes with the Hussein McMahon um, correspondence, and then also making convoluted promises with Zionists 
um, and Theodore Herschel, right, and with the Balfour Declaration. Um, yeah. And so then when World War One and two then end, right, then Britain does what it usually does, what all empires eventually do with their colonies, they abandon them, right? And then you let the indigenous people or the, the native inhabitants fight over this dis disheveled, dilapidated state. Um, and that's yeah. what allowed Israel to come in in 1948 and displace 250,000 um, Palestinians. Um, where they just were kind of dumped into Jordan, which becomes the you know refugee dumping ground um, for any Palestinian refugees that is there. And that's what's kind of created a lot of the conflict um, between Israel and the Arab states that surround it. Uh, again, I, I don't, it's, this is not me saying that I don't believe Israel has a right to exist. Israel has the right to exist as a state, but it must exist as a state the same way every other state must exist. And that is peacefully with its neighbors. Yeah. It must coexist. And it must not be this military, this obstinate military threat that is bolstered up by a big imperialistic bully, i.e. America, who says, well, if you any of you mess with me, then I'll get this other really big Western democratic, predominantly white power to come over here and sanction you economically, you know, and won't trade with you, or they're going to just give me $7 trillion so I can continue to be a military presence here that's pro-America. Yeah. And that, I think, is why, one of the reasons why I'm critical of Israel. Their hands are not clean. Their hands have blood on them going all the way back to 1948. I'm not saying that the Palestinians haven't dropped the ball or haven't at times agitated the Arab-Israeli conflict, that has certainly been the case. There's times in which Egypt did the same thing in 1973. We can talk about that. Or in 67 before that, right? Um, Jimmy Carter yeah. did, did what he could to try to bring peace with Menachem Begin and Yasser Arafat, tried to use Camp David as an opportunity. But I think America just hasn't learned to get its sticky fingers out of the imperialism pot. Um, yeah. And so we continue to do that under the table with our constant funding and support of Israel. Um, I do think Israel has a right to exist, um, but I think it needs to share its borders with the Palestinian states there in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. I think there needs to be more land probably given to the Palestinians. I think there needs to be more recognition that this land is a land that is historically complicated for both Arabs and Israelis. Um, and therefore, you're going to have to learn how to share this space, man. You, you're going to have to learn how to share this space in a way that allows everyone to continue to thrive and coexist and where you're no longer participating in constant war, where you where they then can be an ally within that region, which geographically makes sense for them. As instead, instead of kind of being this antagonizer that Arabs, I think, see as this just, you're just a little America that's here kind of dumbing its nose at us. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, uh, that's really deep, too, uh, to me at least. Um, and I texted you this topic mm -hmm. that I wanted to talk about. Good, I'm glad you're going to, yeah, I'm glad you're going to bring it up. I wanted to drop a couple of organizations, some names, some information. I, I know we might be getting to the end, but I'm glad that you remembered. Yeah. Oh, no, no, it's fine, man. We can take as much time as you have. Oh, yeah. Um, um, so the USA, we allotted 
a lot of our stuff comes from China. We all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, notebooks, phones, cups, whatever else we can get our hands on. Yeah. We kind of, I was, I saw this on Instagram. We kind of rely on modern day, modern day slavery from China. Come on, man. Which modern day slavery is like a little kid who gets paid like one cent an hour building or making your cup or whatever. So do you think we could ever stop relying on modern day slavery? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay. You, you have the floor. Um, I mean, I think we could absolutely do it because I think we were designed to do it. I don't think that God made any human being to own another human being or to forcibly control the labor and economic destiny or just personal freedom of another human being. So human flourishing, that very concept or the idea of humans being made in the image and likeness of God or the idea that every human has rights means that humans can flourish, countries can flourish, human communities can survive without slavery. Um, America did it, <laughs> right? After you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of slavery and colonization um, and genocide, America found a way in, uh, to not have to deal, at least domestically, right? Have to domestically exist on the basis of slavery. Now you, you can argue, and I think the argument is valid that, that that slavery that America has participated has just you know changed hands to being offshore as opposed to domestically in-house. And that's where I think yes. the Uyghurs come in, right? The Uyghurs are an ethnic minority there in China. They're kind of Turkish speaking Muslims who are really Central Asians who live in the Northwest counter, um, Northwest corner of China. Um, China has, has ethnically isolated these people, persecuted these people, and actually there in that province has actually created what amounts to and what just de facto is a concentration prisoner work camp. It's a brainwashing camp where they actually, and you might've seen this, uh, I wanna give a shout out to, uh, I know he doesn't know me personally, but John Oliver and HBO's Last Week Tonight comes on every Sunday night, just 40 minutes of watching him do a comedy news parody you will get more information and more knowledge than you will watching an entire week of news. I don't care which news channel you watch. Um, yeah. But he just recently did, uh, a couple of Sundays ago, did a, did a spot on the Uyghurs. And you'd be surprised how many people don't know about this. And it isn't just that they're living in this concentra- concentration camp, but they take tens of thousands of them after they have brainwashed and reprogrammed them into believing that they are ethnically inferior, getting rid of their religion, being anti-religious and becoming kind of secular patriotic Chinese um, people. They then come in and they work in factories as slaves. They're not paid. They believe it's their duty to, to the communist state of China to work as forced laborers separated from their families and their religion and their culture and their language. And guess what's some of the number one products that they make? iPhones. <laughs> well, I'm going to get to that. We're going to get to Apple in a second. They make masks and gloves. They make PPE. Yeah. Um, and that's a major thing. And we've been able recently to be able to track that. 
Um, and companies have had to kind of come under scrutiny and fire and had to come back to China and say, yo, we need to inspect these factories because it seems like you've got slaves there. Other factories that also have contained Uyghur slaves and also other just child laborers that have been trafficked into China through South Asia or other um, Chinese ethnic minorities or people there are Nike and Volkswagen. Uh, it's not it's no secret to us that Nikes have been made in sweatshops and by forced laborers. Right. We know that Nike probably creates yeah. uh, an Air Jordan, even though Jordan brand is his own brand. It's still right. It shares subsidiaries and, and, and intellectual property with Nike. But, you know, we know that it makes it takes them 25 cents, maybe maybe let's say a dollar to make those yeah. shoes and they sell it to us for 160 bucks retail out the box. Right. Um, the idea of us being able to break away and that's just talking about forced labor. We're not even talking about sex trafficking and everything like that, because the United States participates in that as well with a large Latino and immigrant and undocumented immigrant population that's most vulnerable with our borders um, because they have no legal recourse and they're scared to. Um, to report any sort of abuse or slavery or, or sexual abuse that is happening to them and their children. And they're working within the industries of dishwashers, they're working in industries of nanny and domestic house care because the labor laws in our country don't protect the worker rights of domestic workers, of people who are nannies or housekeepers or people who come in and, and, and clean your home. Yeah. So we can change the way we do things. Right. The night the Air Jordans may not be may not be as cheap as they once were, but we actually could maybe build factories here and equip workers right here in our country to create these sneakers and these shoes. Yeah. Right. We could create jobs here in the United States that could do that. Or if we're going to have work done there because it's cheaper, then we should also if we're reaping the benefits, then we should be going there and inspecting those factories and pressuring China and holding them accountable to say, hey, you've got to pay and treat these workers with human dignity and the respect that they deserve. They're working for us. They're creating our products. And if you want our factories here and if you want the revenue and the income that comes with that, you're going to have to pay workers and you're going to have to treat them like human beings. There's so much yeah. influence and economic pressure that we have. And I know China can be an economic big chip bully, as they say in poker, right? I mean, China holds a lot of economic playing cards, but they do not hold our common decency. They do not hold our humanity um, by the throat. We do. We are able to make choices. And I would hope and pray that our country and even the from from you know, the, the richity rich who own these companies to the everyday consumer, the everyday American citizen who's conscious would say, we choose people over profit. We choose yeah. human rights over the most comfortable sneakers or the flashiest cellular device. Yeah, and you, you touched on it um, saying that like it takes them a dollar to make these shiz and they sell it for 150 plus. Right. Which is... As a kid, I I had one pair of these shoes, the Starberries, when Stefan Marbury was selling shoes for like ten dollars. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I liked him a lot for doing that. 
And I mean, that that weren't the best looking shoes, but they were cheap and they were still basketball shoes. And you can take a stance. I think nowadays um, athletes are another voice. You know, we were talking about sports earlier. I mean, they can take a stance and be more conscientious and challenge their sponsors and the people who, who they endorse and say, hey, these shoes right here were made with recyclable materials or they were made right here in the United States or they were made, um, you know, with animal cruelty-free stipulations, or they were made by people who we know are having, you know, fair trade is happening and their rights as humans and as workers are being enforced and protected. I think that that would be a unique and amazing stand. I think as a school fundraiser, it's very possible that students can, can trace and look at how a lot of brands and um, that they're wearing masks or gloves from in this country may be created by slaves and they can say, you know what, we're going to make our own masks, which you see a lot of, you see that happening a lot. A lot of people are making their own masks out of materials yeah. and recycled cloth materials, things they have around their house and say, Hey, this mask was made without slaves and have that on your mask. We can conjure up awareness and awareness is a great start. It by no means is the finish line of action, but it's a great start. And with the Uyghurs, yeah. most people don't even know how to spell it or pronounce it, let alone know that these people exist and what their plight is in China. I mean, we're talking about millions upon millions, not just of the Uyghurs, of women and children and people around the world who are trapped in sex trafficking, forced labor, unsanitary and unsafe work conditions, whether they be in rub making industries in, in India, whether they be making cell phones in China, whether they are picking fruit in, in Mexico or in southwest portions of the United States, whether they're cleaning your home. And let's not even talk about the seedy and disgusting things that happen in terms of sexual abuse with these people. Right. Yeah. Um, it's just it's a, it's appalling. And so you know, I want to just speak directly to your listeners. Um, if you're interested in learning more or how you can get involved, um, as well as where you can begin to put your money where your mouth is, um, I want to recommend International Justice Mission. That's a great corporation, a uh, great nonprofit organization, excuse me, um, that actually has saved thousands and thousands and thousands of women and children and people um, from forced labor and child abuse and sexual abuse situations, primarily in South Asia. They work, they have legal teams um, who, you know, who fight against laws and injustices and in companies right here in the United States. They raise awareness. Um, they put a lot of information out there in front of your face, international justice mission. And then also I want to shout out Love 146. Love 146 is actually uh, ends child and human trafficking here in the United States, primarily children who are being sex trafficked right here, right here in the United States, especially in the Southeast corridor between the Carolinas, Georgia and Florida. Georgia is one of the number one thoroughfares for trafficked children in the United States. Um, so check those two organizations out, International Justice Mission and Love 146. Well, thank you for all of that, because I definitely didn't know. I didn't know any of that stuff. And I will continue. I wrote those down. And if I'm, I'll look them up, and I will also shout them out in all of the podcast episodes now. Awesome. So thank you for that. And you touched on Georgia. Um, tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken, well, when, when I'm recording this, it's Tuesday, but it'll come out Wednesday. Mm -hmm. When this comes out, you will be back teaching at school to will it be online or 
No. So I teach private. I've taught private my entire career, all 15 years of being an educator. Um, and my school is back to a regular five day week. Um, so pray for us and not just, you know, myself and my colleagues and my students at my particular school, but just pray for teachers and students and families all around the world. You know, Georgia is not the only state that has some schools reopening. My school is not the only school that's reopening. You know, there are a lot of people who are going back to school and even with re remote learning, right? Even though you may not have the same physical health threat um, that comes from being back in the building, it's still a difficult thing for students to get adjusted to. It's a difficult thing for parents who have never been trained to educate their children in this way to all of a sudden become teachers and homeschool their kids. It's complicated for single parents or low income families where both parents or the parent has to go to work and the child has to pretty much administer an entire school day, feed themselves and take care of siblings by themselves. Um, it is yeah. not a comfortable and convenient situation regardless what side of the equation you're on yeah i i understand that because i mean i, I didn't do online school when i lived with my mom mm -hmm. because corona hadn't happened yet but my mom i i had because she coached volleyball and track when i was the first year of middle school maybe elementary school and i know obviously that's not as hard as high school stuff <laughs> it's nowhere near that right but i still because my mom would be coaching volleyball and I'd be doing my homework. And I, I didn't really ask my mom a lot of stuff. I would just get the high schoolers who were just uh, doing nothing. I'd be like, hey, can you help me? With this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I get that. Um, so, But you said you're going back to normal school days, right? Normal five-day, uh, you know, schedule. And that's not, you know, speaking about the state of Georgia, that's not necessarily the case with every county. Um, throughout yes. Georgia, I know Fulton County Schools in Atlanta, DeKalb County Schools in Atlanta, the two bigger um, and biggest counties in the entire state. Um, both of them have delays. I don't think that they'll be going back to school, maybe not this entire month, maybe not until after Labor Day. I know that strikes are happening um, in certain parts across the state and across the country, teacher strikes, that is. Um, and I, yeah. I was in the barbershop today and not a single brother in there was talking about or agreeing with sending their kids to school. You know, both, you know, all, all of the guys in the shop were like, there is no way I'm sending my kid to school in this climate. It's just so, there's no way. So at Augusta Christian, is there an option for you to do online or do you have to come to school? Yeah, so you can do online. You can do remote learning. We are offering that. We're trying to be as flexible as possible. Um, and so and you would still be considered an enrolled student um, and you would just be taking your classes um, online. So it is double duty for teachers, you know, um, because it yeah. essentially means that for every class, if I have. I will have not only those students in front of me, but it's possible in that class, I would have a student or two who is a remote learner. So that means I have to record my class, um, whether I do a live stream or whether I record it and then upload it online later on, I have to record and I have to make sure that I kind of specify and create assignments that are geared specifically towards those remote learners. I mean, they're gonna have some different flexibilities, due, due dates, deadlines, they may need some different uh, instructions or additional instruction to make sure that they understand directions or what's expected for them. It's just not the same, but it, what it means is I'm doing double duty. So I teach six yeah. classes, but the reality is very well, I could be teaching 12. 
Um, yeah. So it's a lot. So, so I mean, if you're going to live stream these, it, it should just be a podcast called like Senate. <laughs> so, you know what? I've had colleagues and students who over the years had said, Mr. Scott, whatever you're teaching, if you ever think about recording yourself, record it, send it, post it. I would love, we just want to hear your voice again or hear your lessons. Um, so thank you for saying that. Um, I, I think actually, depending on what we're reading or what we're doing in class, and I'm going to try to like turn on my like late night show talk, talk show host vibe, you know, when I'm recording yeah. and I realize I'm recording and I'm going to try to see if there's some good content to sit out there. And if that's the case, then you might be seeing some of my lessons online. And not just me, yeah. you might be seeing, you know, with those students' permission, some amazing work and discussion from, from my students. I, I think I'm only as good of a teacher as I have kids who are excited and dynamic and imaginative and intelligent, like yourself, Galt, um, you know, and who want to who work. So um, I've, I've been blessed with having some really, really amazing kids throughout my career. Yeah, I don't know who's going to host Jeopardy for you, though. Cause, I mean, That's true. Without you there, we'll have to find another Nick Cannon Jr. Di yeah. Or you're like, a, you're like a diet Nick Cannon or like a Nick Cannon light, something like this. <laughs> Dollar General? Dollar Ge minus the turban. Yeah, hey, I'm, I'm getting one soon. Are you? Okay. Yeah, I am. I'll have to cut my hair down again. Yeah, right. so it can actually fit in there. That would be cool. Like, if you actually, like, talk to a Sikh man and he teaches you how to, like, actually tie the turban correctly, that actually would be really, really cool. You got to learn how to tie it, though. So, because I'll be back in Augusta for – my cousin is having a baby soon. Mm -hmm. Or he's, he's not having the baby, but, you know, you get the point. He's the father. Right. And so – I might have a turban when I come back. Okay. So you might see me with a turban in September. <laughs> hey, let's get lunch or whatever. Or if you, you know, if you have time to stop by the school, you know, you're always welcome in my class. Um, Miss Lowry is actually teaching middle school now, but she, I'm sure she'd love to see you as well. Um, yeah, you're always welcome. Or like I said, we can do lunch, man. It'd be my treat and it'd be my pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. You are welcome anytime you want. Because my views or my listens go skyrocket high <laughs> because all the people at Augusta Christian want to listen to you. Hey, well, thank you so much for inviting me and having me on. My friends have said the same thing. They're like, you know, Senator, that's actually a really good podcast. And it was great, you know, that you're doing this with your student and that you guys are connecting. And so thank you so much for the opportunity to be heard and to speak and continue to be awesome. man. I'm proud of you, Galt. Thank you. Um, thank you for coming on once again. And that will be the end of the episode. Uh, thank you for coming again. It's it's a big treat for me to have somebody like you on here. Because usually I just have my friends and we just talk about random crap all the time. <laughs> I'm glad to, to bring a different flavor, man. That's what I do. Thank you again. No problem. Thank you.